continuing this series with Job. And, um, you know, it's very true and very apparent, not always apparent. Um, and Job attested this, and we'll see that again this morning, but there really is a spiritual battle going on in this world. Often it's behind the scenes. We don't always see it, but if you are in Christ, you are a believer, you know, you felt that. You felt that spiritual warfare, and I've certainly felt that in these up, uh, upcoming weeks here as we've studied and been preparing for Job. And so I want to pray for us this morning. This is God's Word, folks. It is true. It is living. It is active. It is the only way that we can know or learn about who the God of the universe is. And the enemy of our souls would love nothing more than to distract us. He would love nothing more than to take away the seeds that the Holy Spirit would want to plant in our hearts and minds. So I would pray and ask you to pray with me as we pray this morning. Let's come before the Lord together and ask the Lord's blessing and protection this morning. God, we do come before you. We pray. We ask, Lord, for your help. Um, Your word is living and active. It is precious. It is true. It is the only way that we can know who you are. And the enemy would love to distract us, not just with noise, but certainly he would more so probably want to distract us with our own shame and our own sense of uh, entitlement or control or whatever things that we might be wrestling with in life. So we pray this morning, would you come Holy Spirit and kick out those distractions in our minds and in our hearts, whatever bitterness or shame or fear lies there, um, whatever guilt, Lord, uh, the the long to-do list that we often have running through our minds constantly, Lord, would you by your power of your spirit, help us to lay those things aside for a time this morning. And would your spirit come and speak to us boldly this morning that we would hear what we really need to hear from you this morning instead of hearing from ourselves or hearing from this world. So pray, Lord, we pray, come help us. Come help us, Lord, protect us, guard us, and help us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So this is Job 2. Let's come together to God's word this morning, Job 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But you stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all of this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and so far, the Nahamite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. 
and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Well, some of you take the magazine, World Magazine, I don't know if you've heard of World Magazine, but it is a great news journal from a Christian perspective. It's really a great way to get your news if you're tired of watching the news on TV. World Magazine is very forthright, uh, very, I think, very unbiased, or bi- biased in the toward, towards Christianity and towards the Bible, but nonetheless, it's a great news source. And it also, also has very insightful articles about the church and what's going on around the world in the Church of Christ. Uh, a few weeks back, I was reading World Magazine and came across an article about the Boko Haram, Boko Haram, that Islamist, Islamic terrorist organization, still very active in many parts of the world. This article was about a pastor in his church in northern Nigeria. The pastor's name was Joel Billy, not a great name, Joel Billy. And he was pastoring his church, his faithful little flock there in Nigeria. He was uh, in the worship service. Everybody was gathered for worship. They had a children's sermon like many churches do. And it was time for the children's sermon. So Joel Billy, the pastor, steps down off the platform and his children are assembled in front of the church, and he begins to deliver his children's sermon. He places his hands on his heads, and he begins to speak to them. And here's what he said. He says, he says it's the plan of Boko Haram to come and to drive us from our homes and from our churches. If they come here, children, never deny Jesus. Can you imagine having to tell your children that? If they come here, never deny Jesus. If they kill your parents, oh, little ones, Never deny Jesus. If they take you away into the forest and kidnap you, never deny Jesus. And after he gave his children's sermon, he stood back up. He went into the pulpit. He preached his sermon. He delivered and pronounced the benediction. One of the members went to open the rear doors of the church and turned around almost white as a ghost and said, they are coming. And sure enough, Boko Haram had come to harass his church. Not only to harass his church, but try to destroy Joel Billy's church, there were gunshots. The article reads that most members only carry their Bibles. Some use hymn books to try to shield themselves against the bullets. Forty church members died that afternoon in that little church. Many more were severely wounded. And as I read that article, I couldn't help believe, you know, I can't help but feel that we live, don't we, in such relative ease and comfort here in the United States, don't we? Where so many places around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, face such danger that none of us, many of us, will probably never experience, have no clue about that. Trials and tribulations. Well, Job saw that, we saw last week that Job had lost everything that he had, hadn't he? He lost his money. He lost all of his savings. He ultimately lost his ten children's. Ten children, so had his wife, Mrs. Job. She had lost lots of things, too. And we saw how Job responded. Do you remember how he responded in such an amazing way? What did he say? He said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't that astounding, the way Job responded? That's certainly, I hope and I pray, if I ever were to face such tragedy, that would be the way that I would respond. I pray that that would be the way that you would respond to such tragedy. Job had expressed a concern. Do you remember this back in chapter 1? His sons and his daughters had gathered together at what what looked like 
likely a birthday party celebration. Job, being a good and godly man that he was, he offered sacrifices according to the number of children he had because he was worried, verse 5, chapter 1, that my children have sinned and cursed gods in their heart. He was a godly man. He was a good father. He shepherded and pastored his family well. But that verse where it says, verse 5, chapter 1, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, thus I'll offer sacrifices to the Lord. Some of you might know this, but in the actual Hebrew, what the Old Testament was written in, the word cursed there in that verse 5 of chapter 1, it's actually the opposite word. It's the word blessed. Isn't that interesting? In the Hebrew Bible, when you read that, if you can read Hebrew, it doesn't say cursed, it says blessed. But then in our English translations, it says, it may be that my children have cursed God in their hearts. Now, that's interesting. The reason that it says blessed instead of cursed, because look at the word order. It's right next to the word Yahweh. The Lord, God. The original writer of Job was, he didn't want to put the word cursed right next to the name Almighty God. And this actually happens in other places in the Old Testament as well. I think that's interesting because that alerts us, I believe, to a theme here. And it's the theme of cursing. We saw that last week. You remember Satan comes in, he enters into the presence of God and makes what it looks like to be a wager with God. Basically, he comes to God cursing God and says, listen, the only reason that Job is a godly man is because he doesn't have any trials in his life. There's no suffering in this man's life. And then we saw these extraordinary events that were recalled for us in chapter 1 that God allowed Satan this certain liberty but with boundaries that he may not touch. He can touch everything that Job has. But he can't touch Job himself. But then we get to chapter 2. What does God do? He widens the circle a little bit further. and He allows Satan to touch Job, but not kill him. He might bring sickness to bear in Job's life. And so that's what I want us to look at a little bit this morning. This, the sickness angle here. Notice in verse 3. Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him here on earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. And then this is God speaking. Although you, Satan, incited me against him to destroy him. Here's these two interesting, fascinating words. Without reason. Without reason. That Hebrew word there is hanam. It literally means for nothing. Without reason or without cause. It's for nothing. Isn't it amazing? that This should make all kind of noise go off in your head here. Isn't it amazing that God would say to Satan, you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. There's something terrifying. That says send shivers down my spine. There's something terrifying here about this, isn't there? The thought that there is something that God could make, that God could do something here without reason, without cause, that God could or would do something here that seems totally arbitrary. It's almost like God is playing some, I mean, at least in the reader level as you read Job, it's almost like God is playing some divine game with Job, as it were. At least from a reading level, that seems to be the way it is, right? That God is playing games here with Job. He's doing something without reason, arbitrarily. Well, good news here. 
I think God is putting this in language that you and I can understand. Actually, Scripture does this quite a bit. The, the fancy technical term for this is called anthropomorphism. That's a loaded word, isn't it? Anthropomorphism. All that means is this, is that the writer here is attributing human characteristics or features or behaviors to God so that we on a level could understand it. But here's the deal. I don't think, and I believe this, the bottom of and the core of my heart and my being is that God never, God never does anything without reason. God never in this world does anything without reason. But I think He wants us to think that sometimes He does. And I think that's the point here. It looks as though this is all without reason. You see, that's the point. But that's a scary point, isn't it? A frightening thought to think that God could or would do something without reason. You know, maybe, maybe you're so theologically astute here that you've never thought about such a thing. Well, if that's true, good for you. But likely most of us are probably in the place, at least you have been at some point in your life, or you know somebody who's been at this point in their life, where you're in such a place of darkness where the clouds envelop you in life and you begin to wonder, am I just a pawn here in life? Or the, you know, if, in the cosmic forces that are beyond me, am I just a pawn here in life? Like some divine cat is playing this game of cat and mouse. And there's no consequence. At least that's how it may appear to us, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis, do you all, all love C.S. Lewis? If you ever never read the Chronicles of Martin Narnia, man, got to read them. So good. C.S. Lewis wrote a book after his wife Joy. He loved his wife Joy so, so much. His wife developed cancer and eventually passed away from cancer. And C.S. Lewis was devastated by the loss of his wife Joy. And so he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. Lewis, in the book, A Grief Observed, he talks about the unimaginable thoughts that were going through his mind. I mean, we're talking C.S. Lewis here. But in the book, as he's wrestling with the grief, he's wrestling with God. Why? He, in the book, he, he, he says that God was like some kind of, seemed like some kind of cosmic sadist. That's what Lewis said. What's the point of this? You know, is there a point here? Is there a purpose God, do you have a plan here? Well, then we see here in chapter 2 that Job comes to another day. You know, as if the first one that he's experienced in chapter 1, as he's lost everything in his life, including his ten precious children, we get to the n- another day here. We're not, not sure how much time has elapsed but, elapsed, but you know the phrase, it never rains but it pours, don't we say that? We get to chapter 2, and what happens to Job? Job's health is taken away. I don't know what kind of sickness Job was afflicted with. Some suggest elephantitis or leprosy. To me, it sounds a lot like AIDS. Rotting bones, dark peeling skin, wart-like eruptions, anorexia and fever and depression and nightmares, insomnia, putrid, putrid breath and rotting teeth, your skins and bones. And all of this happens in a hurry. It doesn't come upon Job progressively, but it comes in an instant. And did you notice in verse 12, when Job's three friends come to sit with them for a week, what does it say? They saw Job from a distance, and they did not even recognize him. Such is the effect of this sickness that God allows Satan to put upon Job. that They didn't even recognize their friend. In seminary, part of our curriculum is we had to serve in a hospital for a certain length of time to work with patients and be a chaplain 
chaplain's aide, essentially, in the hospital. I was assigned to Presbyterian Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, a beautiful hospital. And so I get there, and my, my, I had a, actually spent a semester in that internship there. And so I met with the head chaplain there. They had several professional chaplains on staff, and here I'm the, the new guy. And sure enough, they assigned me to oncology and hospice for a semester. It's like, hey, he's the new guy. Let's put him in the hardest place in the hospital. You know, we'll go take physical therapy. You go take oncology. And so they send me over to oncology, and for a semester, I spent a semester working with cancer patients who were dying, hospice patients who were literally on their last hours or minutes of life. And to walk into oncology and to work with these patients who were ravaged by cancer, I mean, they were jaundiced and anorexic, and their breath smelled very stale and rotten almost. Their life was literally fading from their eyes. They were gaunt. And it was so difficult at times to walk into their rooms because you could barely recognize that they were people. They were skin and bones. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is sickness God's will? Is sickness God's will? And I think we know the theological answer to that. Right? Of course. Ultimately, of course it is. Because everything is part of God's will, isn't it? Nothing is outside of the purview of God's power or His will. Nothing happens in this life without willing it to happen. Without Him willing it to happen before it happens. And without Him willing it to happen in the way that it happens. But there's, so, so there's a problem here, isn't there? It's, it's the classic problem of pain, isn't it? How can God be good, finish the sentence, and yet allow, fill in the blank, cancer or sickness? And there are certainly some, you've probably heard these suggestions. You've probably sought out answers to that. You've probably seen answers to that that have maybe, that have tried to answer such weighty questions like that. Well, maybe, well, okay, either God is not powerful enough or Maybe God is not good enough, or maybe God isn't powerful, and so he wasn't able to prevent that. That kind of somehow slipped by his sovereignty. Rabbi Kushner, maybe you've heard of his book, uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. That title in and of itself is awesome. The book is not awesome. <laughs> Don't go, yeah, I see somebody pulling out your phone, ooh, I should order that. Don't order it. It's really not a very good book. But it is a good title. I'll give you the premise here. You don't even have to order it. I'll give you the premise of the book. Here it is. Premise of the book is this, God isn't in control. That's the premise of his book. God isn't in control. As a matter of fact, bad things happen to you because we live in a cosmos where there are good forces and there are evil forces and they are fighting. And somehow God isn't in full control. That's the premise of his book. You know, it's like the person who says, don't blame God for this. God wasn't in that. Do you see how untrue that is? How counter-scriptural that is. Or then there are folks who deny the goodness of God. Uh, in Islam, for instance, if you read the Koran, and I would read the Koran on your own. You can Google it and read it. You, you see so clearly that Allah, Islam's God, is not in full control. And not only that, His, his will is inscrutable. But they are not sure about His goodness. If you read the Koran, you see that their God, Allah, is a fickle God changes and he's always fickle 
Okay, what about the Christian scientists? They believe, here's what they believe, that you can deny pain. Pain isn't real. It's a figment, really. You can get beyond pain. Go ask a mother who's in labor. Does that hurt? <laughs> get over it. Just shake it off. It's not real, the pain. You're going to get slapped, right? You get kicked across the room. <laughs> the pain is real, right? Sickness is real. Let me ask you a different question. Is healing always God's will? Is healing always God's will? You know, when we pray, and we, Pete prayed for that this morning, we do, we earnestly pray, God, would you bring healing upon Jason? Lord, would bring healing upon Scotty? Bring healing upon those who are sick whom we love? We pray to the Lord that way, don't we? But sometimes it's not God's will, is it? Take Paul, for instance. What did he say to Timothy when Timothy had stomach issues? And again, don't let this be a, don't get all bent out of shape about this. What did he say? Timothy, take a little wine to ail your stomach pains. Take a little wine, Timothy, for your stomach's sake. What was the point that Paul was making? Paul didn't have the power to heal Timothy. Timothy wasn't healed, and so he says, Timothy, go take a little bit of medicine. Go to the doctor, take a little medicine. That's essentially what he's saying. You go to 2 Timothy 4, Trophimus. Not many people know who Trophimus was, but he was one of the eight who accompanied Paul in his third missionary journey. Paul tells us that he had to leave Trophimus behind at Miletus because he was sick. I mean, here he was with Paul, but Paul couldn't heal him. Or think about uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about what the thorn in the flesh. Do you remember Paul talking about that? We don't really know ultimately what that affliction was. But he prays three times, God, would you remove this thorn, this affliction? Many people think it was some kind of physical ailment, perhaps his eyesight. God said, no, Paul. In fact, there came a point in Paul's life where he stopped praying for the healing because Paul realized by God's grace that there was another purpose in this affliction in his life that what? My grace, Paul, would be made sufficient for you that you would learn to live in dependence upon me. My strength is perfected, Paul, in your weakness. What's the point here? The point is the godly, us, the people like Job, they get sick for seemingly no apparent reason. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes God does trying to teach us a particular lesson. We read Hebrews 12. It talks about the Lord disciplines his sons and daughters whom he loves. Sometimes God can bring affliction to bring you to a place. He brings you down, down, down low because he's trying to make you listen to him. He wants to woo you. But then they're just, honestly, there are some times in life where they're just sickness comes and there appears to be no reason, at least from the point of view of where we're sitting. And then we meet Job's wife, Mrs. Job. That's what I call her, Mrs. Job. Oh my, Mrs. Job. What does she say in verse 9? She comes to Job. He's outside of the city. This is what common practice when people were mourning and grieving over loss or sickness or death, they would sit out on the ash heap, the dump outside of the city, in sackcloth and ashes. And Job is outside of the city, he's on the ash heap, and she comes outside of the city and she sees Job there scraping himself with shards of of pottery, perhaps to relieve the, the skin lesions he has. And Mrs. Job says, do you still hold fast to your integrity, dear? Are you still protesting, Job, that you are good? And we know from what we read this morning in our call to worship, Romans 3, that there's none good. There's none righteous. No, not one for all. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole point of the book of Job, get this, listen. 
The whole point of the book of Job is to say that his suffering had nothing to do with his sin. Understand that. It had nothing to do with his personal sin. God says that. But from the commentator's perspective, Mrs. Job doesn't receive a great deal of kindness from the commentators. Listen to a couple of comments from some of the old commentators. St. Augustine. He said of Mrs. Job that she is the diable adjustrix. Latin, I can't pronounce it well. It wasn't a compliment. Augustine called her the devil's advocate. John Calvin, when he preached 159 sermons on Job, referred to her as the tool of Satan. How would you like to be, ladies? How would you like to be referred? Oh, this is Mrs. Tool of Satan. (laughs) Thomas Aquinas suggested that Satan had spared Job's wife for this very purpose, that she might say the things that she's saying here to tempt Job even further. And what does Job, how does he answer his wife? He says, you speak like one of the foolish women. Basically, he's saying, stop the trash talk, Mrs. Job. Well, maybe because the word foolish here is to be contrasted with the word wise. Oh dear, this is not wise talk. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is the kind of talk that comes from ungodly people, dear. This is how the ungodly think, Mrs. Job. Don't talk that way to me. Now, some of us, we we probably have sympathy for her. I I do, I think. Maybe we we should interpret what Mrs. Job says in the kindest of ways because, think about it, here she's watching her husband die in front of her. And she's saying, just curse God, Job, and get it over with. Because I don't want to see you suffer like this. Maybe she said this because she realizes there is no social security for her, is there? There's no future for her husband. They've lost everything, and so her future is dark and grim, and so she, so she lashes out. And then there's Job's response, verse 10, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Isn't that an amazing statement? It's extraordinary that he would say, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive Evil, that's in the same category if, if you remember Joseph's word in Genesis 50. And you remember we studied Joseph several years back? Joseph was kidnapped by his brothers, or kidnapped, yeah, taken by his brothers. He's, he's, he's abused by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. His brothers abandoned him. They left him for dead. And much later on, after so much tragedy in Joseph's life, God exalts Joseph. And do you remember at the end of Genesis his brothers uh, are finally revealed to Joseph. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And do you remember what he says at the end of Genesis? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, the same, the same set of, the same providence, the same set of possibilities. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or what do we, we, we cling to the promise of Romans 8. You remember Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, and are called according to His purpose, all things what? Work together for good for those who are, trust Him and are called according to His purpose. So we see that God works all things for good, folks. That's what Romans tells us. Not just the good things, but God works all things. The bad things. The cancer. Now, cancer, you know, what, what a visible description of the fallenness of the world that we live in. Cancer of the world that's broken and fractured. 
All things, Paul says, work for good, including this sickness that was unto death. Shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive, or shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So has Job solved the problem of evil for us this morning? Well, in our tradition here at Wellspring Presbyterian Church, particularly in our denomination, the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church, if you're a new member here, you've been through the new members class before, I've told you about the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was this wonderful doctrine written in the mid-17th century by the Westminster divines. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is the standard of rule of doctrine. It is an immensely helpful guide, if you will, on how to understand the Scriptures. It is subservient to Scriptures. God's Word is first, primary, always will be. But we believe this is a great document, and it helps us understand what the Scriptures teach. Well, in the third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's called the chapter on the decrees of God. And the writers were thinking of this particular topic that we're talking about this morning as they wrote this. And they made certain cautions. They made certain cautions. They said, God is sovereign. We believe God's Word teaches that God is sovereign over all things. God holds the universe together in the palm of His hands. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen. And yet, they say, He is not the author of sin. Nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, they say. Nor is violence done to the will of creatures. Now, it would take, un- it would take hours to unpack this, but they make absolutely no attempt to explain that for us. They tell us what Scripture teaches. But here's what they're trying to say is that God is, God is over all things, everything. And here in Job, it's almost clearly God is as close as it is possible to get, to e- as get towards evil, isn't he? He's talking to Satan, for goodness sakes. He's giving permission to Satan. He's, he's saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He allows these things to happen, to fall out according to the nature of second causes. So what's the point here? Well, the point is not to give you this fancy lecture on this fancy term called compatibilist, I can't even say it, compatibilist providence. Basically, it means this, that God's exhaustive sovereignty over all things is compatible with human freedom. And we'll talk more about that. But the point is this. Look at me. If you only get one thing today, I just leave with this. The option of losing your grip and your grasp on the sovereignty of God, it's not an option for you. Losing your grip on the sovereignty of God, it's not an option for you. When tragedy strikes, losing your grip on God's sovereign hand is not an option. Let's imagine this. Let me illustrate this. We all have to drive home today. Right? We'll leave the church. We'll all take a right. I hope. Don't take a left. Take a right on 220. And we'll go up, right? And there are crazy people who drive on the roads, right? Have you experienced crazy people before? Maybe you're the crazy person. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> but we experience, there are crazy people driving on the roads. There are crazy people driving, doing crazy things. And you turn on 220 and you go up here to the median. You take your U-turn and you head back towards Daleville and the Kroger area. <clears throat> And somewhere in the area of the Kroger Shopping Center, 
we find that there's an area where God is not in control. About a half a mile stretch there on 220 is an area where God's sovereignty is absent. God is not in control. Would you drive that way? I wouldn't. <laughs> Guarantee I would not find some other way to go. Okay, here's an, let's illustrate it even more. Say you've got a fancy schmancy GPS smartphone deal, you know, and you've got you're driving along, you've got your GPS active, and it's always, isn't it, this, this, this pleasant, attentive female voice with a British accent? <laughs> and this, the British accent makes it all the better, doesn't it? <laughs> Turn here, you know. And she says to you, God isn't in control for the next 10 miles. I'd get off the road immediately, wouldn't you? I would. Why do bad things happen? Why does cancer happen? Why do we pray? Why does a 16-year-old boy who was six weeks ago completely healthy and he has a brain tumor removed and now he will likely, we don't know, but will probably have certain deficiencies for the rest of his life and not be as he was. Why well, We've been praying for Andrew Brunson now for a year and a half who has been locked in prison for seemingly no reason. Why is Job in the condition that he found himself in? I don't know. I, I don't know. I know it has something to do with Satan. I know it has something to do with cosmic forces involved. But listen, beloved, hear me. At no point is God out of control. At no point is God removed from those situations. At no point is God out of control in your life. It may look that way. It might appear that way. It may even appear that he has moved against you without cause. Listen, it's not a judgment against you because you sin. Yes, there are some. Can God sometimes bring you up short? Can He bring providences into your life to affect you because He's bringing up sin in your life that you've never confessed to? That's possible, but that's not the case here because God says so. And we're going to look over this, uh, uh, gosh, we're going to probably look at this exhaustively over the next several weeks because that's the message that Job's friends are trying to pound in his head. Job, there has to have been something that you've done, some sin buried deep down in your conscience that you haven't confessed, and thus you're suffering this way. It's not true. See, the lesson of Job 1 is really, chapter 1 is the lesson of Job chapter 2. How can you know that God intends good for you. How can I be certain when outward, circ outward circumstances come my way that say something different? How can I know that God intends good for me? And here's the answer I can give you. I can give you this. It's the answer that every kid gives in children's Sunday school. The answer is Jesus. Look at me, beloved. The answer is the Lord Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That's how I know. I can't answer. I don't know. I don't know all of the philosophical angles here or the questions. But I do know that he is in control. And Job's talking to his wife here and he says, Shall we receive good from God 
And shall we not receive evil? I am trusting him, dear. I am choosing to trust him. And we're going to see that that trust is going to be put to the test because, you know, sickness here, if you've ever been sick before, we had the flu. You know, what is it when you move somewhere, you seem to catch every disease that that state has? When we first moved here, we caught everything that Virginia had to offer. I had the flu. I hadn't had the flu. I don't know when the last time I had the flu. I was so sad. I was crawling down the hall. Oh, God, help me. I mean, I thought I was going to die. And, you know, sickness does that. It robs your ability to think. It doesn't just rob you of your ability to to have physical strength, but it robs your ability to think rationally. It robs you of your intellect. It robs you. It makes you think with your emotions. And we'll see next week, Job is reacting so strongly with his emotions. He is going to be in a very, very dark place. Well, I came across such an awesome hymn this week. I've never, I've never even seen it. And I need to learn it, maybe put some new music to it, because it's such a good hymn. The hymn is by a guy named George Newmark. The name of the hymn is, "Thou, If Thou But Suffer God to Guide Thee. Well, George Newmark, uh, he was on his way to college. He was a young man before he had written this hymn. He was a young man. It was 1641. He was walking across Germany to go to university. That's what they used to do. Can you imagine living in South Carolina and you're going to walk to Virginia Tech? <laughs> That's what he was doing. He was walking across Germany to go to university. As he was on his journey to begin to be a student at university, he was robbed. He was mugged. Everything that he owned was taken from him. When he arrived at the town where his university was, he could not go to school because he had no money. So for the next four to five months, he wandered around nearby cities where his university was looking for work. He was eventually hired as a tutor. He worked for four years as a tutor to save enough money to go to university. The, money, uh, the house that he was staying in as a tenant burned to the ground, and he lost everything that he had once again. The next day, he wrote this hymn. He says this, If thou but suffer God to guide thee and hope in him through all thy ways, he'll give thee strength, whate'er betide thee, and he will bear thee through the evil days. That's a great promise, isn't it? If you trust him, if you lean upon him, he will bear you through the evil days. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for these words from Job. The enemy would not want us to see these. He would not want us to read these. He certainly would not want us to know how he operates. But God, thank you that nothing is outside of your sovereign hand. You are indeed in control. And because of that, we can trust you. We're in awe, I'm in complete awe of Job's faith. The tenacity and the courage that he had in the face of such overwhelming sorrow and grief, Lord, I I can't imagine that. I don't have that. We pray, would you strengthen us? We pray for one another. Lord, we pray for our dear brothers and sisters who are actually where Job is today. Lord God, would you bear them up on eagle's wings that by your power and by your grace they would be strong they would be courageous. Would you fill them with your spirit? Would you help them to look at Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of their faith? Lord God, help us. We need your help. 
Lord, we love you and we honor you and we praise you. Thank you, Father. And it's in your precious Son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last, last song this morning. The church is one foundation.